Danny Wareham is my guest today. Danny is clearly involved in culture and employee engagement. He runs a company called Firagoon, which we'll learn a little bit more about in a minute. Danny, welcome. Thank you very much, Marcus. Lovely to be here today. Thank you. Well, first of all, could you give us 60 seconds on your history, please? Of course. So my name's Danny and I run an organization called Firagoon. And what we do is we create places where people can feel safe and deliver against a purposeful strategy by creating the behaviors that support that specific strategy. And my background's quite varied. So as a child, I I was weird. I didn't have a big circle of friends. I came from a very low income, low social mobility area. And all of the kids in my area played football and Kirby, which is an English game where you basically throw a ball at the curb. Whereas I was busy recording the news off the TV and learning to sing in a choir. So I was, I was very different. I didn't really <laughs> fit in. When I went to school, the, the UK school system at the time was three-tiered. There was a first school, a middle school, and a high school. And the first schools and high schools were linked together. Now, because I was quite astute and intelligent at the time, I finished my, I went to school, went to the first school with people from my area, but I finished school two years early. So I was forced to go to a different middle school than all of my peers, and I was the youngest in it. So again, I didn't quite fit and didn't quite belong. When I graduated, again, I didn't play sports. I actually wanted to be a doctor. So I did did my A-levels in chemistry and biology and physics and anatomy and physiology. And one of the A-levels required some physical exertion, and I had to pick a sport. So I chose basketball because I, I had another outsider who transferred from another school who I knew played basketball. And between leaving high school and starting college, he taught me in that six weeks how to play. And it was the very first time that I ever belonged. It didn't matter about my height, the clothes I wore, the music I liked. It was the first time I found that the things that had previously been considered a weakness by other people were suddenly a strength. Transfer to my professional life and... I had a, I used to work in kind of customer services and contact center type roles. And I found myself frustrated by the way that change management and processes are released in a particular blue chip organization. So I put myself forward to try and improve the employee experience from a process point of view. So how do they hear about a particular products? How, what do they do if it goes wrong? Where do I get the pricing, et cetera. And factor that into the kind of project methodology before change happened. My kind of realization was that Uh, and it informs one of my mantras today, is that it's not that the process is potentially broken. It's that people don't come to work in order to do a bad job. So when bad jobs happen, and that they do happen, if we think that people are inherently bad, we have a limiting belief that makes us blame the salespeople for hitting certain targets or missing certain targets, rather than what is driving that behavior. And that started my journey towards employee engagement and culture and what's the underpinning drivers of why people behave the way they do and how can you align that to your strategy purposefully. So I want to dig into that and I'd like to dig into the hard numbers on it in particular because Mm -hmm. I know a lot of people look at culture and employee engagement as maybe a bit woo-woo or a bit abstract. Um, Certainly employee engagement is very fashionable at the moment. and you're probably rolling your eyes thinking, oh my God, I hope my boss doesn't hear about this because this might be the next shiny object. Because (laughs) with it comes enormous effort if you want to get it right. Just scratching the surface and starting actually makes things worse. Better just to carry on with your broken culture and your broken systems that have found an equilibrium than rock the boat without taking into account the employees, without taking into account the resources, including the financials, which are just part of your resources, and also looking at time, because most of the deadlines are actually durations in my experience, and these deadlines are false, uh, which Mm -hmm. then creates false priorities and creates needless stress. But before any of that, (laughs) why Firagun? It's a word I've never heard of before today. So because it's personal to me, So Fiagun is a Hebrew slang word uh, that doesn't have a direct translation into English. But broadly, what it means is the genuine, pure and sincere joy and happiness for somebody else's accomplishment or experience. 
And it's kind of the opposite of the German Schadenfreude, which in the UK is very popular. Everybody knows it, which probably says more about us being brought up on TV programs of skateboarders falling over and then getting hurt, etc. Fearguns are complete opposite. So it's when you see somebody do a good deed and you get that warm, fuzzy, ah, oh, that's Feargoon. And that's a personal driver for me. I spoke about belonging previously, and it's not just that as a child or adolescent, I found that, you know, I can play basketball and I've got some mates. It's deeper than that. And I didn't realize until I was, uh, until I was an adult that actually when I host a barbecue, I'm not actually entertaining people. I'm making sure everybody's glasses filled. I'm experimenting with food, but I've got safe stuff as well. So everybody can try something new, but it's a safe environment. You can go back to the other stuff. When I play basketball, I'm not trying to score. I'm trying to set everybody else up for success and get them in the right spots. So in my private life, I'm also about creating spaces where other people can succeed by creating places that they belong. And fear goon is the, the kind of emotional connection and the physical motivation that I have from that. It sounds like there was a defining moment. Tell me about that. I touched on it on it briefly because I again it was a bit of a it, it was a bit of an epiphany because at the time I my mindset or what I thought was my mindset was very kind of pragmatic and data driven and processy. You know, I loved Excel. I was very good at building databases and access. I'd, I'd earned a moniker of database Dan. So I, I, I of course, <laughs> as a child, I was you, reading. You know when that happens, it's time to reflect. <laughs> yeah, but, but I kind of wore it with pride. You know, I, I, I read encyclopedias as a kid and, and recorded the news off the telly and so on. So I, I, I kind of relished in being both a geek and a nerd. When I saw the pain in the contact center that, that change was causing, I approached it very much as a, in the project methodology today, there is a clear sign-off process for customers before a product can be released. Why isn't there one for employees? So I went in with a very kind of rigid set mindset of we need to put a gated process in to challenge how do I make the experience better for them? The upshot of it was I, I completely changed my mind because I went in thinking, you know, if, if, <laughs> if we've got a threshold of you can give 10% discounts in a sales function and the reporting says that you've given 15% away, then that must be because we, we've got shonky salespeople who are fudging the rules and selling anything to anyone. Actually, that's not the case. That's very, very rarely the case. In fact, the reward structures that we have, the leadership approach that we have, the culture that we create and the behaviors that manifest because of that are encouraging that behavior, which then encourages that performance. And that was the epiphany. That was the epiphany. Um, but my uh, friend Bernard Hornung, made a really astute observation. He says, the values of the money permeate the culture of the organizations they invest in. Mm -hmm. And this ties really closely to jobs to be done theory, because when you understand that the general partners in a fund are really fixated on trying to raise the next fund, because that's another eight years in Biarritz and you know, their third holiday home in Florida or whatever, and uh, the school fees, that drives all the other jobs. It drives how they sell the valuation to the limited partners. It mm -hmm. determines who they recruit as leaders and who they invest in, who they ship in to uh, drive change, the way those people are compensated. What that does in terms of the trickle-down effect on management in terms of who you hire, what behaviors you uh, elevate and reward and recognize and what you punish and fire for. And mm -hmm. then that affects how salespeople interact with customers. Your marketing is exactly the same. Your customer service the same. They're driven by how you measure, uh, how you measure them and compensate them. And they'll work around those systems to try and keep the rent paid. So why is it that when we know that people come to work for their reasons, and it's almost never just about the money, mm -hmm. There comes a point where, yes, it is just about the money because you've got to survive. But most of the people listening to this podcast and most of the people who work with the people listening to this podcast aren't going to be in that position. Mm -hmm. um, so it's really about trying to find meaningful work that they can grow with and develop. And you get so much more out of them. Why is it when all the evidence points to the commercials, the economics being significantly 
I mean, factors of 90x better in terms of profitability. Mm-hmm. Why is it that the investors still insist on pushing that other message, which is it's just about the money? I think it's a really valuable question because it kind of goes to the heart of, of the challenge with culture versus the hard and fast, I know what the ROI is from a from a financial viewpoint. So Simon Sinek said that when people are financially invested, they want to return. When people are emotionally invested, they want to take part. They want to contribute. The challenge is that the short-termism that we tend to see in the way that organizations are set up, so whether that's quarterly statements or even annual returns and you know EBITDA and earnings per share and so on, having to come back to, to shareholders, because culture feels more abstract and takes time to embed or to change what you've already got there, then that's not as attractive as let's reduce our headcount by 20% or let's introduce a new product because it's a direct financial ROI that they can see. But that's also incredibly lazy. Yes. And it, bluntly, it's the unintelligent route because if you stop and you ask some provocative questions like, well, if we have a blank sheet of paper and we were to start again, what would we do differently so mm-hmm. that we win our customers win, our employees win, and our partners win. If you start with that mindset, what's possible? And that's what culture's about. It's not some wishy-washy, you know, let's have a fun office with pizza Fridays and dogs under the desks. That's not what culture is about. Culture's about understanding what your vision, mission, and purpose is as an organization and your strategy that will take you there and then understanding what behaviors and approaches you need to support that strategy. It's not a nice to have, it is a purposeful thing. To go to your point, I think part of the problem is some legacy thinking around leaders like Jack Welsh, who were great in their time, their time being a time of great economic growth. There's lots of jobs available. It was a, there's a lot of deregulation that went on in the markets. So it, it unleashed the beast. So it set the bull free, as, uh, as Reagan said. That environment, that macro environment doesn't exist today. You have saturated markets for things like if you're a telecoms operator, everybody in the Western world has got a telecommunications device already. So you can't rely on, on growth to differentiate you from your competitors. Customers are now more savvy around the ethics of business. They are more interested in the sustainability and the genuine sustainability, not just making stuff last longer, but the circular economy. Don't, if you're still using Jack Welsh, Milton Friedman-esque thinking in how you're operating, then you're going to do, you're, you're going to be operating the same way that you did in the 80s. And those times, you know, those times have gone, it's 50 years ago. Well, <laughs> those times have changed. changed. They really have. And if you haven't, then you fall prey to Darwin's definition of survival of the fittest, Mm -hmm. which is those who could adapt to the current environment best. Can you define um, a circular economy for those who don't understand what that means? Yeah, so a a circular economy is, if if you equate it to nature, in nature there is no waste. Things that are produced as waste by one organism or by one process are used as fuel elsewhere. In our economies, most of the things that we we produce and use are linear. We dig them out of the ground, we process them so they're usable, we use them for a while and then they get thrown away. Before they get thrown away, they might get reused, they might get recycled, but ultimately it's going to end up as waste that something can't use today. And most of the conversations around sustainability are not about turning that waste back into an input but instead about making it more efficient linear process. So can we make the fuel last longer? Can we make the coal last longer? Can we, you know, that that tends to be the description. In a circular economy, it is a circle. So there are all of your, what they call biological nutrients, are able to be reused and repurposed ad infinitum forever. There may be some technical components that enable those things to happen but they can just be reused over and over and over again. They may be easy to be replaced. There are some challenges around energy inputs, et cetera, but basically a circular economy is the move away from make, use, dispose to how do you reuse that disposal to make something else. So bring this into a context that people maybe can uh, get their arms around. 
creating small circular economies, local circular economies. So as a process, composting is a really basic example. So you, you have food that grows in your garden, you might grow potatoes. When you process those potatoes with sunflower oil, for example, which is also grown, you eat them and you produce waste, but there is also waste from the cooking oil and from the potato skins. Those things can be put back into the environment, including the the human waste feces, and the environment will use that as fuel. The the mycelium, the bacterium, et cetera, will use that as fuel and turn it back into, into useful stuff. In a business context, you're looking at things like so again, if I, I, I come from a telecoms background, if you look at mobile phone devices, the processes to create a mobile phone device require, on, require exactly the same view and approach as growing your potatoes. You're digging a resource out of the ground, whether that's the gold or the, the, the component part making parts out of your phone. That's transferred into a phone and is used for a fixed point of time. The Components are only used for 12 months, 18 months, 24 months, and then it is recycled. It's either given to an auntie to use or it's sent back to, mm-hmm. the, to the warehouse so they can pull out the battery and re- repurpose Magpie. it. Exactly. So they, they, they pick the bits out that are usable and the rest goes to landfill. You know, some of it might get recycled, you know, melted down and turned into a, a washing up bottle or something. But broadly, most of about 80% of things in mobile phones end up back in landfill. And it's it's a shame because a ton of mobile phones contain, contains more gold than a ton of gold ore. So why <laughs> wouldn't you put the investment into pulling the bits out of that? There's been experiments with trying to make components that you can swap in and out very easily. So you're, you have a base model phone that you have effectively forever and you can upgrade the camera, et cetera, when you want. Ironically, that actually drives more waste because people can upgrade whenever and those components yeah. become, become throwawayable, if that's a word. So in the mobile industry, what they're looking to do is how do you change the ingredients within the components so that they are either easier to return into the environment so one of, a, one of the other beings on this planet can help transform them? So can I make them out of um, compostable chassis, for example? Mm-hmm. Parts that cannot be recycled, how do we make sure that the return rate of those is is hundred percent, so that they can be repurposed with just input of energy into other devices, etc. So they're not going to landfill, and that circular economy is again, it's all about there is no waste. Waste is food. How do we make our waste useful again and again, forever? It, it's a, really it's interesting seeing how organisations like BlackRock are making ERG central, whether they invest or not. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, you know, the, the sustainability policies have to have real legs. Now, seeing, the, seeing that in action, I'd love to see that it sh- uh, shifts the balance. But mm-hmm. for example, you know, Mark Carney talks about maybe putting a tax on carbon-hungry cement, creating incentives for uh, carbon-absorbing cement. And that will force manufacturers to shift because of the margins. Yeah, of course. Of course. and. But I think part of the, to, to bring it back to culture, part of the challenge around sustainability is that humans don't consider themselves part of nature and organizations don't consider themselves part of nature. They see nature as being something that is there to support and, and be sustenance for organizations. Well, it's to so be, be taken from. It's, it's, it's yeah. a resource to be sucked. Yeah, so it's not that we're one of the other primates on the planet and we're, we're part of the environment. It's we're separate from it and it is a, it, it is a, a resource or a, it's a mechanic that is there to support us. And even the most staunch kind of Greta Thunberg-esque supporting people won't always consider the impact of what they do. You know, when, you, when, you, when you flush the toilet, you're not thinking about where does that water go? Where did that water come from? What was the impact of the environment, et cetera? Um, because we're, we're not educated in that way. So that cultural belief of us being separate from, from nature is actually you one of the driving forces. Daughters, really, um, <laughs> that, that will resolve that. Um, <laughs> so let, let's talk about the selling culture internally, because I, I think so often, um, you know, we hear this uh, Drucker phrase, you know, culture eats strategy for breakfast. Mm-hmm. And yes, in theory, 
but most strategy is massively flawed. It's imposed with the wrong people leading it. And as a result, the three to five big bets that the leadership has placed, one or more of those um, threads goes awry. So then people lose faith in the entire strategy. And two years later, you fired that particular consultancy and you brought in another one. And and the failure rate for change management programs is in the high 80%. I have people within my ecosystem and my network who have a 96 to 100% success rate implementing and delivering against the outcomes without creating unintended consequences over the last 32 years. So I know it's possible, but most people seem to choose to prefer the 12% odds. So tell me, how do we prevent that particular act of self-sabotage and shooting oneself in the foot, both feet? Yeah, both feet. That's a really fantastic performance, Marcus. And you're absolutely right. You know, if you if you've gone on a plane and the captain said to you, "We've only got a twelve percent chance of landing today," you get <laughs> off that. You get off that plane pronto. <laughs> nah, so, <laughs> so I'm the, feeling lucky today, punk. <laughs> oh yeah, that yeah, that bad stuff happens to other people and to yeah. other organisations. Yeah. We'll be fine. It's a really interesting point because there's probably a, for me there's a couple of answers here. So one is. First of all, there's a huge amount of organizations out there that don't have strategies, that don't have purposes and don't know why they exist. They know their measures. They know we're here to hit revenue targets, et cetera, but they don't really know why. They exist to raise funding. If you think that your culture is there to support your strategy, if you don't have a strategy, if you don't have a purpose, if you don't have a mission, then how can you articulate to your employees what good looks like, what's what's acceptable and what you want to drive. So first of all, there's a big cohort of companies that, that really need to understand what their purpose is and what difference they make in the world and why they exist. The second part um, for those organizations that do have a solid strategy is, do they have a solid strategy? Yeah. So we're going to put the customer at the heart of everything we do. And every conversation, we should be thinking about the value adding to the customer journey. Okay, well, let's have a look through your business because culture leaves evidence. (laughs) Actually, if I look at your Outlook calendars for your senior leaders, I can see that 80% of their meetings are spent on commercial stuff. Actually, only 4% are spent around CSAT, MPS, and, and other things relating to customer. So is your strategy real? Are you lying to yourselves? And is it legitimate? In which case, let's get your organization aligned with what behaviors and what approaches will encourage that. Or do you need to have a mirror held up to you and double check that what you say you're going after is what you're going after? I can't remember who said it yesterday to me, but it was a stroke of genius and they described it as scaling failure. And they amplify the highs and the lows consistently by doing more of the same, by throwing more bodies at the problem more money at the problem, more technology at the problem without ever addressing or even thinking about what is the real problem. And is it a problem or is it a series of intertwined, interrelated problems which we caused? And if we stop doing something really stupid, Mm -hmm. like, for example, focusing on lagging indicators or focusing just on the money, then actually we'll create that change and we create a flywheel effect with very little effort and no nasty consequences. That would be the, that would be the Valhalla. Uh, another consideration though with culture is that culture is not the behaviors themselves. So if you see behaviors that are happening in your organization that you like or that you dislike, reacting to those behaviors will reinforce your culture depending on how you do it. But actually culture sits below the level of behaviors. It's the thing that made those behaviors acceptable or encouraged in the first place. Understood. Well, someone said to me a couple of months back that companies don't have culture, teams do, and those cultures are created by the manager. Mm -hmm. And there was a lot of pushback on that. But I think there's somewhere uh, between, which is that companies that don't have a purpose then don't create a purposeful culture. And then the teams create their own culture. And that's where you get these stovepipes, you get this dissonance, the disconnect, the lack of alignment, the blame, excuses, whining, moaning, uh, you know, the stuff. (laughs) You you are, uh, as we say in the UK, spot on. 
you get culture in any social group, whether you want it or not, it happens by design or default. And design is always better. The If you don't have an intentional, purposeful way of driving your culture, then because we are social tribal beings, we form our own tribes. So organizationally, you end up with lots of little siloed activities of people that are thinking they're doing the right thing because nobody comes to work wanting to do a bad job. But it also drives suspicion of the tribe over there that's different to us. So interoperability and interworking between departments becomes stifled as well. And I have a a slightly controversial view on culture that I don't believe that there are good and bad cultures. There are toxic cultures, which I, I can touch on later, but culture is a tool to help you drive a specific purpose. If the tool is the wrong tool, then that culture is a mismatch. So for example, you have a culture that relies on looking inward, on introspection. So looking at people around them, looking at the the mission that's advertised around them. You have rigid structures around who's responsible for what, who's accountable for what. You've got clear objectives. If anything goes wrong, you've got perfect line of sight of who to go to. That is a great fit for crisis management. And that's something that's used in the the armed forces. If you want innovation in that organization, you cannot have the soldiers freewheeling and failing faster and learning faster because that will not fit that particular organization's purpose. On the flip side, if you have people that have rigid structures, clear line of sights, clear objectives, and are, are, you know, they're not allowed to freewheel and, and go their own way, that wouldn't suit an innovative company like Apple, for example. So culture is not necessarily good or bad. It's a good or bad fit. And finding the fit for your strategy is, is really what unlocks the potential of your employees. Right. So a really good litmus test, I suspect, would be the early resignation of new hires. Because if they feel that they've been sold one thing and they realize it's something different, that will drive um, a lot of people to change their mind. And there there was a really depressing stuff I saw about three, four months ago. Can't remember the source, but it was around, uh, I think it was 32% of new hires in technology leave within 45 days. Yes, that, that sounds, it actually sounds a little low. <laughs> there, are, there are some industries where the fallout through the onboarding process can, can be eye-wateringly expensive. Although because that budget is hidden between the attraction people, the training people, the operations, it can be a little bit hidden as to what the true cost is. Right. So one exercise that I've gone through, which was, it, it, it does bring grown men to tears, is calculating the true cost of a wrong hire. And it's the wrong hires are the highest hidden cost in any business. The second highest hidden cost is cost of RFPs. Um, Sorry, cost of pursuit, hidden cost of pursuit. And then third is uh, hidden cost of RFPs. Unless you're an RFP-led business, in which case they're probably the highest hidden cost. (laughs) Because the win rate on those is on average about 10.6% of buying cycles end up in an RFP. And the win rate is one in four, which means that of all the buying cycles that you initiate and you spend money on trying to engage with your total addressable market, bring them onto your marketing platform to scream, we're here, into their deafened ears, push them into your selling platform so you can demonstrate what we do uh, for more marketing dollars, and then throw them into your forecast so that you can drive them to your competition. Um, because you've irritated them so much. The cost of that is all sunk. And your only real objective is to find customers who see the value in what you offer. Mm-hmm. So the emphasis is on the wrong end. Um, the investment appears to be, how do we do more brute force stuff mm-hmm. instead of think? So how do we create a culture where our leaders think and they ask themselves uncomfortable, provocative, insightful questions? So again, there's a couple of sides to this. From the recruitment side, people are quite often missold a dream, but not intentionally because nobody comes to work wanting to do a bad job. But the measure of success for recruiters is I've got a a job advert that's got 10 bullet points of required experience or required skills. And the perfect candidate fulfills those 10 bullet points as close as possible. For an employee, the thing that 
is most attractive to them in role once the kind of hygiene factors of things like salary and, uh, and benefits, et cetera, are, are sorted is, can I grow in this role? Can I be stretched? Can I be challenged? So actually finding someone that's got all 10 bullet points is completely different to what your employees are, are saying they, they thrive for. So there's a disconnect between how we attract talent versus what keeps talent in your business in the first place. So that, that mis-selling of the dream because our mind is in the wrong place of what good looks like is the first part of that funnel. Once they're in your organization, let me phrase it another way. How do you know that your partner loves you? It's not because of the physical things that they do one-off. It's not because of a grandiose thing they do. It's because everything they do is authentic. It's little consistent things that show that they care. Now, in the recruitment phase, there will be little signposts to say, we care, we're a great employer, et cetera. If there is no evidence of that in the organization, then people are going to start to feel unloved. Okay? So it's about authenticity. And that means asking yourself difficult questions. It's no good bringing them a bunch of flowers once a year or remembering an anniversary with a, you know, some badge. Or, or bringing them the flowers when you screwed up. Yeah, that, that's worst too late. Time to bring flowers. And, <laughs> and the biggest part of my, my kind of role is understand where your business is going. What behaviors do you need to support that? Let's look for evidence that what you say you do, do you walk that walk as well as talking? And culture leaves evidence. And there'll be things like, you know, we, we have a value of, of trust and transparency. Okay, there's no, there's no price on your job. There's no salary on your job advert. That doesn't feel very trusting. And, and that feels like you might have a pay disparity in your business and it's been in. <laughs> you say that, um, you know, we're all about simplicity and getting things right. but the the attraction process took eight weeks. And actually, one of the interviews, the person didn't turn up. You say you're, you say you're about trust, but a, good, a really good litmus test for this is have a look at your Outlook messages. How many people as a ratio are CC'd into the message? Because that's a really good indicator of the evidence of, are you trusting each other or is there a bit of backside covering that's going on? So culture leaves evidence and knowing where to look so that you can validate whether the talk, the talk matches the walk, the walk is part of the challenge of anybody that's interested in employee engagement and cultural change. Now, this smacks to me of one of the big gaps that I see when people are selling change programs because they don't spend enough time in the setup and they don't involve the poor buggers who are going to have to use it, live mm -hmm. with it, maintain it, pay for the renewal. So the people who are most directly affected are so frequently least involved. And they're the ones who have the closest relationships with our customers. <laughs> they are uh, having the snippets of conversation and listening to the throwaway comments and being there at those moments when the customers need the guide and the help or being the point of, at the point of friction. And if you're not listening to those people, and you're not taking them into account before you put a change program into place, of course it's destined to fail. I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but it's actually worse than that. So there are about 180 cognitive biases that inform your thinking. And once you have made your mind up about something, part of your brain, your reticular activation system, looks for evidence to support that decision that you made because subliminally you like to hear your own voice repeated back to you. So if you have seen evidence that your leader was dismissive or, you know, they said they're about customer, but, you know, they've just introduced a program that delivers money, but actually have an impact on customers, then you will look for other evidence that might not even be there. It might not even be related, but it, your biases will reinforce that in your head. So it's not just enough that we talk the talk and walk the walk. If there is any evidence between the two or any perceived evidence between the two, then we will start to reinforce what we already believe and one foot's out the door already if that starts to clash with our personal values. This is really interesting because, again, a lot of my work is around working with individuals and trying to get to their root cause motivation. And if their top motivations aren't being satisfied, they're obviously a flight risk. Yeah. And you can recover that if you can identify it early enough. But if not, there's already one foot out the door, there might mm -hmm. as well swear. And if an opportunity comes along, you've now got a problem because uh, chances are what you haven't done 
is treated recruitment with the respect and importance that it deserves. So you're going to react because you haven't built a bench. And so when you do hire, you then have to hire the compromise candidate that is available at the time locally. Yes. And if you get, if your recruitment is smelling of roses and fantastic and the adverts attracted you, and then you get to the interview or then you get into the organization and it's not quite there, you've got a very small window before people start reinforcing those beliefs to themselves as well. Exactly. So so your, your EVP, your employee value proposition is not just about the list of things like cycle to work and, you know, pay and, and all these other sort of tangible benefits and, and attractors. Well, it's people, also about how you make people feel. Well, people want to come to work in my experience, certainly uh, white collar workers mm-hmm. and salespeople. We want to come to work and do meaningful, important work. Mm-hmm. We want to feel like we're making a contribution. Just going through the motions is mind-numbingly dull. Now, there, there is a time when that's uh, useful and it's meditative. I think I might have had to. <laughs> and it can be uh, quite fulfilling, but certainly for the kind of work and where I am and most of the people that I work with are, they desire to be involved in interesting projects, working with other people Mm-hmm. who are equally committed and they give massive discretionary effort and the intersectional moments of having people with very diverse backgrounds and very diverse perspectives all having this, their eyes looking at the same problem the creative solutions that come out of it the shortcuts that the time we save the effortlessness of coming up with a really elegant solution by spending most of our time thinking about the problem and thinking about what is the outcome, the job that the customer is trying to get done. Yeah, what's the purpose and what's the right tool to to solve it? It feels real rudimental. And the kind of cruel irony is that we can all see when there was no diversity of thought in a decision. You know, the marketing world, the advertising world is full of gaffes of people, you know, advertising a product that has felt tone deafly. And we all say, well, if they just had these types of people, if they just got somebody to proofread it, somebody would have spotted it. And yet at the same time, we don't always do that in our organizations. We might change the door policy. This is another controversial view. I'm not an advocate of diversity for diversity's sake. I think if you focus purely on diversity, it can drive behaviors such as measurement and quotas, and we need to hire more people from a particular protected characteristic demographic. What's really important is that you create the environment where people can say, I've got an idea, I don't agree with that, or you're wrong, without ridicule, judgment, et cetera. If you create an inclusive, vulnerable environment, diversity is the output. If you do it the other way around, you quite often end up with the same boys club still making the same decisions and groups of people who may look, love and worship differently stood on the periphery, not contributing. And what you do there is you create the condition, you attract them for their difference. Yes. And you make it impossible for them to stay because they cannot fit in. And you've got to break that pattern. Diversity is the right thing to do, fine. Yes. Yes. But the economics of it, the payback from having a very diverse group of people trying to tackle difficult problems. And especially as we head into what does appear to be the toughest recession that we will ever have faced. The economic cycles are all working against us and there is a huge challenge ahead. We've gone through two and a half, three years of the pandemic, the economic misery, Uh, We've got all these other things like World War II and a half. We've got supply chain issues, inflation, money supply, all that stuff. You're painting a terrible picture, Marcus, but yes, you're right. All of that is just what is. Mm -hmm. So accept it and then start to ask yourself the simple question, so what can we do? Ourselves, it's within our control that will allow us to shore ourselves up against what's coming. Then what can we do to be effective in it? And how can we then thrive? And the most obvious question in my mind at that point is who do we need to partner up with so that we can weather this together? So we can lash our boats together through the storm and we all make it. 
and we all make it having done well, yeah. serving our customers to thrive through this. And the key word in, in all three of those sentences, Marcus, was together. None of us is as smart as all of us. But if we only attract people that think like us, then we may as well just go alone and nobody successful ever goes alone. So the first challenge is how do you, how do you genuinely create an environment where you actually value other people's perceptions? And it's just because they're, they have a different viewpoint to you. It doesn't mean that they are less intelligent. It doesn't mean that they, are, they can be dismissed uh, or dismissive of their ideas rather. It's how do, you, how do you get your ego out of the way, get out of your own way so that you can understand different viewpoints? Because the world looks very different to a fish. <laughs> uh, explain. <laughs> so if, if you look at a map of the world, you, you will see the land in the middle surrounded by the sea. Yeah. If you're a fish, it is the complete opposite. It's a huge ocean with bits of land around the outside. Both are right. Both views of the world are completely correct. But because of the life experience of the fish, because of, of how they've grown up and experienced the world, their view of the world is very different. My view of the world is very different. I, I come from a, a quite poor background in a very working class, poor area of the country with very low social mobility. You know, most of the people that were kind of my age when I was their age, most of the kids that I grew up with are still there, still doing very kind of working class type work. When I'm working with C-suites, they tend to have come from a completely different background. So when they're approaching a problem, when they're trying to innovate or, or, or have a different view on something, just because I look like them, just because I'm a, a, a white, cis, heterosexual man, the fact that I've got a very different viewpoint because of my life journey to get to the same boardroom, we can view the, the solution to the problems completely differently. And this is why I'm not a fan of diversity in its own right. Don't get me wrong, representation absolutely matters. You need to be able to see yourself mirrored in, in other people. But if we are focusing purely on how people look, how people love, how people worship, then we are missing the true purpose of diversity, which is about cognition and the value you yeah. bring to those conversations. And it, culture, it, for for me, it's about those. diversity of thought and diversity yeah. of perception. Yeah. Because together, uh, I can highly recommend Range by David Epstein, a fabulous book. And he really makes a very interesting point that specialists tend to produce less creative solutions than diverse teams. And in the economy, the market that we're going into, the stress levels that we've carried over, the employment challenges, the money problems and all of that, we need to be able to thrive through that anyway. And you can accept the fact that this stuff is happening and it's beyond your control. And through creating the right culture, by attracting the right people, creating the conditions for them to thrive, then you can make a damn good job of it. It doesn't have to be all doom and gloom. I love a bad period because there's always a great upside. You know, when we talk about global recession, about half the world will do pretty well out of it. Mm, of course. It's because of their approach. You know? It's the old adage that experience is what you get when you don't get what you wanted. You can't be the, the proverbial winner every time. The, the real way that people grow is through adversity, through falling over, learning how to pick themselves back up. It's incredibly cliched, but it's absolute facts. <laughs> it's absolute facts. And when it comes to improving the experience for employees, it's not about what do you like? What perks do you like, Mr. Chairman or Mr. Mr. C-Suite or Mr. Senior Manager? Because everybody is different. If you're focusing on the physical, what I call the shiny, shiny, the manifestation of what, what you think good looks like. So we should, you know, let's increase salaries. Let's let people work from home two days a week. Those are all great tools, but are they informed by your strategy that then informs what, what behaviors you need to drive with your culture? Right, but that's not, like, that, that sounds to me like trying to cook just by pulling stuff randomly out of the cupboard. <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you a, a, a story about a client pitch very quickly. So I, I went to see this, this client who uh, effectively what they'd done is they'd taken a load of virtual assistants, small two-person type companies and brought them under one umbrella. So they right. got about 100 employees and they wanted to rebrand as a single company, create an environment, create a, a culture, et cetera. And he says to me, I, I want to create a culture like Apple. 
I says, okay, well, there's a lot to unpack there. What what do you mean? What what does that explain to you? He says, well, I, I went to um, a tech conference and a tech company in America, and I was sat talking to this, this CFO in a communal area, and it was buzzing. It was, in, it was vibrant. It was so energetic. And right in the middle of the room, there was a 10,000-piece jigsaw puzzle. And people from all over the organization and all over the campus, which was a shared campus, were having coffees. And whilst they were there, they'd do a little bit of the jigsaw. So the first thing I did when I, when I bought this building that he's moving these, these virtual assistants into is I bought a jigsaw. And he points over at a, at a box in the corner. He says, it's been there two months and no one's touched it yet. No one's even opened the box. And I said, okay, then. Okay, so let's, let's unpack that. Not the, not the jigsaw, the idea. And I, I retold in the story of the All Blacks, who have a, a, a famous approach that the New Zealand rugby team clean the changing rooms of everywhere they play. And it doesn't matter if you're on the senior men's that you will have seen on the TV doing the hacker, right the way down to the grassroots people. And the reason they do that is because it's still a tiered, unofficial caste system within New Zealand between the colonial heritage and the Maori heritage. So one of their values around equality is making sure that you respect others, everybody's equal, everybody can contribute. And the manifestation, the art, artifact of that is that they do everything. They clean the toilets, they, they clean everything up. If you don't believe the same values, if you don't know why they're doing that, if you don't know the All Blacks' purpose, it's just a jigsaw. Mm -hmm. It's just a pizza Friday. So starting, starting with what are you trying to achieve? What are you trying to drive? What do you believe? The physical manifestations of that culture, what's acceptable, you know, how people dress, how they talk, all these kind of things that you can physically see in an organization, that's culture leaves evidence. That's the authenticity through your business. One of the things that the themes that's come through in this conversation is the attraction to the shiny object, mm -hmm. whether it's funding as a milestone, a badge of honor in your entrepreneurship journey, whether it's having Salesforce and only Salesforce, because I can't, I, I'm, <laughs> I'm not going to put HubSpot in, even though it's right, yeah. uh, but I have to have Salesforce because I have to have that because all my friends have got it. Whatever it is, you, you see this because I don't think there's enough uh, re reflection. And I'm sensing that there isn't enough. Is it down to ignorance because people don't know? Or is it down to willful ignorance that actually they've realized just how much bloody work's involved? <laughs> and they think, you know, I can't be bothered. If, if yeah, I keep yeah. doing what everyone else does, I'm not going to get fired for it. And they play not to lose rather than to win. My personal values won't allow me to kind of believe that. So nobody comes to work wanting to do a bad job. Now, that's not to say that you do occasionally have some assassins and, and well poisoners who are, you know, I, I don't care if it falls over because I'm going to be somewhere else in, in six months time. But I believe that nobody comes to work wanting to do a bad job. Quite often, because you've, you've seen the shiny, shiny, you start with that. You know, you, I regularly hear conversations about we, we need an award ceremony or we need to get a newsletter out to the front line. My approach, and this applies for everything, not just culture, it can apply to your internal comm strategy, it can apply to your, your funding strategy, is what's the purpose? What are you trying to achieve? So in the case of an internal comms, what do you need the audience to do differently after they've engaged with it? Once you know that, you've now got a clear idea of what good looks like, which means you've got clear measures. You know if you go in the right direction. It then means you can inform what tool to use. So maybe a newsletter isn't the right way. Maybe for that particular purpose, you need a face-to-face -face or you don't need anything at all. So getting people to, to ignore and stop being magpies and focusing on the shiny, shiny thing that you see, because that's what we've always done. And I quite like pizza every Friday. Instead, start with what are you trying to drive? What's the purpose? How will we know when that's successful? In recruitment, mm -hmm. one of my favorite questions is, how will you know as a recruiter, how will you know in 12 months time that this was a successful hire? No one ever says, because I got a bum on a seat or because they match the 10 points on the job description. They always have a much more abstract view of this is how the person will fit in. These are the relationships they'll build. These are the stakeholders they'll influence. And this is hopefully a shiny, shiny they've delivered. You know, they've, they've increased conversion 10% or whatever. But it comes back to we think is that abstract, difficult to kind of understand amorphic 
feeling that we all have. And culture for me is if you look at those, if you look at a job description from the Bank of England and HSBC doing comparable jobs, you, they will almost be carbon copies of each other. They will both talk about the heritage of the business and what they do. They'll talk about how much they love their customers. They'll talk about how much finance they've changed for the world. They'll have the same sort of lists. But when you walk into those offices, it feels very, very different working in HSBC than it does working in Bank of England. So that resume, that structure, that shiny, shiny is not what your, what your culture is about. That's not what employee engagement is about. Employee engagement is purposefully identifying what you want to drive in line with your strategy and then putting in place programs, initiatives and approaches that take your employees from where they are today to align them to that strategy. And if you don't take them, they will interpret the strategy their own way based on their own little silo of whether they're in customer services or sales or tech, et cetera, and they will create their own culture that helps them deliver what they think is that strategy. Which you will then punish them for because of your ambiguity and uh, failure yeah. to give clear direction. Yeah, or you'll and reward it. I've seen examples of, you know, your commission structures reward certain behaviours that you didn't expect to manifest. So actually, you, you need to look at the suite of things. That, let me take a step back. The way that I work is understand where you want to go. Understand where you are now. I also understand the type of employees you have in terms of their psychological preferences. Last step that I hand over to my clients is you can't invest in everything, but if you want to take this type of employees, so are they all introverts or extroverts, et cetera, from this environment to purposely deliver against this strategy, the best place you can invest to get the most juice from the squeeze is these things. And it it might be internal comms for one company. It might be leadership development for another one. It might be facilities management. It could be all sorts of things because they're but all touch points. Leaders are very often reluctant to put in the effort to do that groundwork. And that's immediately, for me, a red flag. It's incredibly damaging as well, yeah. uh, especially yeah. where they then ignore the advice and make a captain's call, which is my favourite uh, expression <laughs> of uh, someone just about to pull the trigger on themselves. Yeah, yeah. Um, so how do you get leaders to put their egos aside? So as you've, there's a pattern in my answers here that there's two parts. <laughs> so the first one is that this is not a money-making exercise for me. I have a genuine passion, innate passion from childhood to help people belong, feel safe and contribute and set them up for, for success. So if I, if I won the lottery, I would continue doing what I'm doing because it's not about the, the hygiene factor of payment. It's about creating those environments. So personally, within my contracts, I actually have an opt-out at one point to, so that both the client and myself can understand, are you serious about this? Or is it something that you think is, you're only really interested in the shiny, shiny, and it's, it's a, a short-term measure because I'm not the right person for you. Where that, Luckily, that's not yet been invoked because the the recruitment phase is very honest, transparent, authentic, and there is evidence of that all the way through our relationship. On the flip side, on the client side, quite often people don't realize that they can actually be the, the challenge. They don't realize that they sometimes need to get out of their own way. And but the, the good thing about culture and, and the approach that I and other people like me use is identifying what evidence there is through your business that is driving these behaviors or performances, et cetera. So the example of the two versus CC ratio in your emails, mm -hmm. the language that's physically used in your organization, what's written on the wall in terms of mission statements and values versus what you see on the floor. There's lots and lots of, it's like the matrix. Yeah. I see the black behind the matrix. Everybody else is focused on the green bits coming down. So when it gets to the point where I'm ready to give my report, there is this amorphic, ambiguous, abstract concept of how we feel at work and how we get things done that is culture actually has some cast iron solid evidence to say, look, this is what I've seen in your organization. You say you're about employee experience, but actually you announce redundancies on World Mental Health Day. You say that you're about customer experience, but there's no time in people's diaries for this. The agendas for team meetings, actually, it's not an agenda item. In the meetings that it is an agenda item, it's an addendum at the end. If you're serious, I'm not here to question whether your strategy is right. If you're serious about that strategy and it's not just lip service, these are the things that you should invest in to change. And they can be 
really small, simple step change things, just like moving, for example, employee, put that right at the top of your agendas, instruct that, put more focus on catching people doing things right. Not just the big things, not just he's landed a 10 million pound deal. It can be absolutely anything at all. Small, little, incremental things that let you know you care, just like you would with your partner. Excellent. Danny, you got a golden ticket and you can go back and you can uh, whisper in the ear of the idiot Danny, age 23. (laughs) What one choice bit of advice would he have ignored if you'd given it to him? There's probably two pieces of advice, one misinformed and one good that I didn't realize was good at the time. So the first piece, sorry, mum, but it's one of my mums and she, she meant well. But her piece of advice was when you close your eyes, that's all you've got in this world to depend on. And what she meant to imply was you can, you can depend on yourself, trust your gut. I interpreted that as go alone, you know, do everything yourself. And actually, that is possibly the worst piece of good intended advice I've ever had in my life. And uh, I, I have had this conversation with my mom. She's not going to find out on here because of it. We've already had that combo. How you engage others, how you bring others on the journey is much more important and get out of your own way, just like I help my clients. The second piece of advice, which was a great piece of advice from my school days, and I didn't learn it until I was well into my 30s. And that is when I was at school, I was, I was a nerd. <laughs> I was two years ahead of everybody else. I left school before everybody else. I, I was a, a smart ass, if you pardon this phrase. And I knew the answers. So whenever we had quizzes or anything, I just gave the answers. And my teachers used to say, show your workings. And I was like, What's, I've got the answer right. Why do I need to show you the working? The fact you can't do the mental arithmetic in your head is your problem. No? <laughs> Actually, nobody likes that smart ass. Nobody likes the, to, to feel inferior, not be allowed to speak in, in sessions, et cetera. And Good helping day, day. people understand, how did you come to that idea? What's your idea? What's your thought process? How do you bring people on that journey? That is absolutely something I would have wanted to understand more as a 23-year-old not for professional life, but just for life in general, because it would help me understand more about the value that everybody can add to every situation, every time. Excellent. This has been fascinating. Uh, Definitely having you back. I've got a couple of people that I'd love to have you on a panel with. (laughs) So what would you recommend people consume by way of content, books, audios, podcasts, videos? There's quite a few. My most recent discovery, and it's, a, it's one of my idols from the basketball world, but it's because he wasn't really a basketball player. So he was the first basket, British basketball player that played in the NBA. And he's a psychologist called John Amici. And he first came on my radar because he played in the NBA for a couple of years and then left and went to Europe, couldn't get a job. The Orlando Magic took a chance on him and paid him a, a very small salary. And he got very good. As a result, the LA Lakers offered him something ridiculous like a $17 million contract. And he turned it down to stay with the Orlando Magic on about $600,000, which is crazy if you think about it. But his, his, the reason it attracted me is because loyalty in sports is, is virtually non-existent. And he wanted to stay with the team that had took a chance on him, that brought him back to his dream. Fast forward, he's uh, now a very successful... Um, a psychologist, and he has a book that was released last year called The Promises of Giants. And for anybody interested in unlocking their inner giants themselves, whether it's as an individual, whether it's as a, as a leader of people, or whether it's as a, an aspiring leader um, that maybe doesn't have a, a formal hierarchy, um, it is an exceptional work of prose. So The Power of Giants, uh, sorry, The Promise, Promises of Giants by John Amici. Wonderful. How can people get hold of you? The simplest way is I'm very active on LinkedIn. I think it's a fantastic networking tool and more people should use it for that rather than to try and sell crypto. Um, So LinkedIn, Danny Warren. You can also find me um, at my website, which is feargoon.co.uk. And feargoon is F-I-R-G-U-N or Call my name three times or say one of the phrases I hate, human capital, three times, and I will appear in your mirror like Candyman. That's one for another day, I think, Marcus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Mark Herbert was so rude about human capital, but he's so right. So turning human into machines, that's an, an, another story. <laughs> we don't, we don't have time today, Marcus. Uh, I'm not sure time. I have enough breath in me. <laughs> Danny Wareham, thank you so much. 
you're quite welcome, Marcus. The pleasure is genuinely be all mine. And I, I wish you all the success with this podcast as well. Thank you. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you want to get a hold of me, Marcus at laughs-last.com. And if you're looking for someone who's a bit of an unconventional coach, who's going to rattle your cage, coaching, training, mentoring, and generally being the very heavy Jiminy Cricket on your shoulder, keeping you on the straight and narrow, then um, maybe drop me a line and let's talk about whether we can work together. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling.